Right, hello. Uh, yeah, I am Chris, uh, and I'm one of the elders here. And it's a, oh, it's, it's, maybe it's a, a joy and fearful to be able to speak to you from uh, Acts this morning. Um, those of you that are with us regularly, that are part of us, will know that we've uh, recently begun looking through Acts together. And uh, it's my, my privilege to, to get to verse 42 of chapter 2. So, here goes. I'm going to read it, and then we'll look at it together. So, chapter 2 of Acts, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the, in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Sounds incredible, doesn't it? Um, on on the, uh, the, the 22nd of March, 2020, life was in upheaval. Uh, you'll remember, a lot of you, lockdown had just been initiated. And Dan took us to this very passage, this foundational passage, to draw our focus to things of key importance to remember in a time of turmoil. I mean, this passage has been there for a couple of thousand years. And it's been relevant to the church through every war crisis and turmoil since. So I'm confident that today we're going to find it very relevant to ourselves. Because here we are, two and a half years later. And guess what? While some things you might think of return to normal... More turmoil still seems to be happening. Some of the things brought this morning has maybe highlighted that we face personal turmoils and maybe you are facing one today. And I don't really want to draw any attention to anything specific uh, on the wider uh, news. But I'm sure we can agree that the world is full of broken people still encountering one crisis after another. It's the world we live in. And just like the last 2,000 years, we, the New Covenant Church, are still called to be God's people. Because Jesus said, you can find it in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. That's the church, people. That's who we're talking about this morning. God's mission to grow and build his church it's not always going to look exactly the same, but there will be hallmarks. And they will match the blueprint that we see emerging as these 120 disciples filled with the Holy Spirit and the 3,000, the 3,000 plus that joined them. In the midst of great turmoil, we have a greater hope. So at this point, the Spirit's been poured out on the 120 and the 3,000. 
And we get this kind of succinct and clear picture, this description of the effect of what being filled with the Holy Spirit had on their lives. It was making significant changes to them. They weren't living as those around them anymore. They were profoundly different. Now it's vital to note that the Spirit didn't come because they were doing these things. The Spirit had come because Jesus had done his work on the cross, returned to heaven, and he sent the Spirit. A couple of weeks ago, Rich was preaching on, on that very thing to help us and he helped us raise our expectations to be filled with the Spirit and to go on being filled with the Spirit, to receive power and keep being filled. I hope we all remember that. So let's look at the four things that we see in verse 42 that they're devoted to. It is the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking bread, and to prayer. That's quite a lot to cover. In fact, there's a lot more in there too, isn't there? Signs and wonders, sharing of possessions, praising God, worship, further growth. I'm not sure I'm going to get to all of that this morning, but it is a whole picture we need to keep in mind. Firstly, before we look at the particulars of those what's that they were devoted to, I want us to consider the background a little bit more uh, and think a bit more about the why. That's usually a more important question, isn't it? So none of these four core hallmark activities were particularly new to those that had been brought up in the Jewish tradition. They would have been used to frequenting the temple. They were a community. They prayed. Even breaking bread and remembering Jesus' death, which was obviously new to them, was firmly connected to the Passover, where for centuries devout Jews would have monthly remembered God setting their ancestors free from slavery that they experienced in Egypt. They were celebrating their newfound freedom in a similar way, by symbolically eating, drinking, and remembering that they were indeed a set-free people. This would have been much newer kind of stuff to the Gentiles that were joining. Perhaps their previous experience would have involved some sort of temple worship, praying to other gods. Or perhaps their previous focus... Even their hope was on some political or military solution. Or perhaps they just used to fish because that was the family business. But whatever they left, life they've left behind, they're coming into something new, which led to a, a, just a massive change in what they did with their time and resources and how they did it. And it would have looked very different to all of culture, all of society around them. So having been filled with the Spirit, whatever their personal history, the Spirit was leading them to a faith-filled and zealous pursuit of God. And they weren't all pulling in different directions. They were all following the Spirit, oozing with the Holy Spirit devotion, eager to do the same things together, united. We see that as a, uh, it just comes through that whole section this togetherness about them. I'm going to talk more about that. But let's not skip any steps. I want to be clear, this wasn't an external behaviour modification programme they'd all been through that made them together. They weren't just conforming 
with the sort of culture and practices of the crowd that they've just joined in with. These changes were rooted in their repentance and baptism, their, their change of direction. They were, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. I think if we'd been there, we wouldn't have heard them asking, do we have to go to a meeting every day? They were discovering that they wanted to be together. The Spirit was transforming their desires. This change is happening by the Spirit on the inside, and their desires are starting to align with God's desires. This was the beginning of a new promised season of knowing God's law by the right, his writing of it on their hearts. And we're still living in that same age, that now and not yet. The Spirit has come and we're awaiting Jesus' return. We are being transformed by his marvellous grace. And perhaps that's something helpful to guide our prayers, uh, kind of in line with your kingdom come, your will be done. For ourselves and for all amongst us. Perhaps when praying, particularly for the younger ones amongst us, we can be praying that God would graciously fill them with his spirit. And that might turn out to be a more fruitful prayer than praying that church meetings would better suit their natural, natural preferences. We're looking for change in the hearts of people. So devotion had taken hold by the spirit, not by the flesh, by the spirit. That's why they were radically changed. As we saw last week, uh, there's a personal response to be made to God's call upon our lives. It would make no sense to be devoted to these things if you've not realised and acknowledged your need for a saviour and received Jesus as such, been publicly baptised in his name. We heard that last week. And as we're seeing week by week in Acts, the Holy Spirit that dwells in us is his divine power that gives us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, as Peter would later phrase it for us. His divine power, the Holy Spirit, is needed to enjoy a life of devotion to him. So Luke describes the hallmarks of God's first new covenant church. What did it look like? Well, this is my second point. Firstly, we're going to look at the second hallmark of the four. Did you follow that? If you're taking notes this morning, it's going to be a challenge, just so you know. They're together. The second point is they're together. Personal response leads to a desire to be with other Christians. The 3,000 join together with the 120. Regularly, consistently, daily even. Devoted fellowship cannot happen if we're not together. I know, it's not rocket science, is it? That's why I started with this second one. They were together physically, and they were together in spiritual fellowship. They met together every day. They met together in a central public place. And they met together in each other's homes. Where they ate together with miserable and compliant hearts. 
Oh, no, sorry, sorry, scratch that. With glad and sincere hearts. They found themselves actually wanting to be together. Stick with me if you sometimes find it hard to be around people. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. One result is that they become sincere and intentional about being together. Now you might think, Chris, can't you see I'm here? It's everyone that's not here you need to be telling this to. Maybe some people will be able to catch up online later. They might have good reasons for not being here. That wasn't, I won't be too pointed with that one. Um, quick, I better move on. So a key feature of, of what they, they got together, uh, when they got together is in, in verse 46 there, which we can see where they eat together, like at food and stories and hub picnics and student lunches, as well as in each other's houses, just together with friends. It's such a good way, isn't it, of connecting with people, of sharing lives, of giving and receiving, sharing and supporting, growing in friendship. Discipleship, happening in the context of food and friendship, is a beautiful thing. It's how Jesus did it. Plenty of barbecued fish on the beach with friends as they were on mission together. Another feature we find in verse 43 and verse 44. Verse 43 starts with everyone. Verse 44 starts with all the believers. I think that means that all were involved. Clever stuff, isn't it? Even introverts found a way to join in. No one was excluded from showing hospitality, from sharing their possessions. However much or little people had, they could be generous and share what they did have. This reminds me of the uh, Macedonian church in uh, 2 Corinthians. Need glasses for that. In, verse, in chapter 8. Uh, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's people. And it goes on. There's the, the, you don't have to have a lot to share. Uh, everyone, uh, yeah, these guys, they, they rightly refuse to be left out of any opportunity to give. Now, not only were all of them devoted to these things, the repeated ands in verse 42 indicate that everyone got involved in everything. They didn't have a pick and mix attitude, a kind of, I'll have some fizzy cola bottles and some raspberry bonbons. Are they the blue ones, the raspberry? I don't know, better stick to the lemon. Can't understand why raspberry ones are blue. Anyway, I'll pass on the, I'll, I think I'll pass on the giant straws. They're way too heavy. Jazzies, definitely get some jazzies. Porky pigs, where are you with that? Are you going to choose that or not choose porky pigs in your pick and mix? White mice, yep. Pink mice. Pineapple cubes, surprisingly good. Sour dummies, always got to have some teeth. 
they're hilarious. Anyway, this might not be the best illustration because my point is that it absolutely wasn't a pick and mix. They weren't just choosing, oh, I'll do one thing, but I'll not do another. Prayer, for example, wasn't just for some special category of intercessors. All the church prayed. Breaking bread and drinking wine wasn't for those who had been good all week. It was for those that had been made righteous by the blood of the Lamb. The Holy Spirit kind of filled them with this hunger for all of it, not just for the eating together. Or not just excluding the eating together, if that's your natural disposition. The community, the fellowship, the word, the remembering, the prayer, it's an all. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes the church for them, and for us, I suppose, using the analogy of a body. There is one body filled with one spirit, worshipping one God, full of grace, building each other up, maturing, each connected to the head. That is Christ. One particular way that that analogy of the church being a body, I think, can serve us is to help us realise that a healthy body part detached from the body is never desirable. We don't expect one of our arms to come to the decision that it's better to stay in the lounge while the rest of us goes to eat dinner in the kitchen. Thank you. So we can expect that when we hear that a hub is meeting, for example, the spirit in us is going to desire to be with the rest of the body. Confession time now. Okay. One of my long-term personal character challenges is cynicism. So when I read this, I have to go into battle with that. As the thought comes to me, yeah, right, Chris. That's how cynicism starts all its thoughts for me. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. No one was left out. Yeah, right. Everyone went to every meeting. Yeah, right. They had faith with all the people. Stop. That's enough, I say, to my cynicism. That's how I stop my cynicism. <laughs> but cynicism aside, thinking about this, we have to ask the question, had they really entered some perfect environment, some personal states of collective sinless perfection, that they obtained immortality. Did none of them have any character flaws at all anymore? Had all of their annoying personalities been cured? Were all the toddlers angelic 24 hours a day? Were all the teenagers never grumpy? Have I offended everybody yet? I'll carry on. I'm going to suggest, and yes, I'm adding some of my own experience here, that they still lived in the reality of an imperfect world and in imperfect bodies. And that there wouldn't have been a complete absence of challenge in their lives. The enemy, the deceiver, he wouldn't have given up his mission to steal, kill and destroy. They would surely have still been under attack disagreements amongst them would still have occurred. Tiredness and hunger would have had its natural effect from time to time. What I suggest we are seeing here is a season of many great victories in those battles for faith. And the winning of those battles was leading to a great strengthening 
of the church. Perhaps we're seeing a thread of connection between their daily reliance on the Holy Spirit, their devotion to these things together, those grace and faith-filled shared experience creating bonds of unity. And we could expect that in that scenario, in that environment, in those contexts, dealing with disagreements would have stood a good chance of being handled in a godly way. Well, to put it in the negative, leaning away from prayer, avoiding fellowship, not receiving leadership teaching, and forgetting the cross would have made them vulnerable to the enemy's desire for division, for separating prey off from the safety of the herd so that he can pick them off. I think what we have here is a great example of the church working so we know it can be done, and we see that it is good. Not having an absence of attack, but resiliently seeing off wave after wave of attack. We can imagine how annoyed Satan must have been when he saw it. I can imagine him looking in his bag of tricks. He has a bag of tricks. Well, he does for this situation. Can I start a pandemic? Wouldn't that be great? That will keep the church apart. What's more? Instead of seeing each other as welcome brothers and sisters, they'd all see each other as a lethal threat. I can also imagine this first group so enjoying God's grace, so full of the word and prayer, so trusting in the cross, refuting those lies with the likes of 1 Corinthians 12. Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is part of it. I can imagine them declaring, I am part of the body of Christ. He's the head. My brothers and sisters are the body with me. I am going to meet with them, pray with them. I am going to be open with them. I am going to resolve conflict with them. I'm not going to let the devil gain a foothold. Okay, maybe he wouldn't have, they wouldn't specifically have been able to use that passage because I don't think it was written at that point, but they would have used something like it. So thirdly, Having looked at the second hallmark, I'm going to move on to the first one. Or is that back to the first one? Anyway. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Amazingly, the Holy Spirit had made them teachable. Now, this does make sense, because in the context, especially for the 3,000 that have just recently repented, which was essentially admitting they were wrong in trusting themselves, that they didn't have the answers, and it was only God opening their eyes through that, that they uh, received the truth. They're kind of newly and freshly on this trajectory of learning. They've learned that they have a lot to learn. And so they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. A few years later, Paul prophetically prepares Timothy by saying that the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Paul is alluding to the scenario where people will happily hear something that they already agree with it, we agree with, and claim to be teachable. But if you think about it, the only times we can claim to be teachable is when we hear something we don't at first agree with or understand and are willing to consider it humbly. Willing to consider a bigger picture, a different perspective, coming to new wisdom and understanding. 
if our response to a disagreement with our teachers is to go and find other teachers who agree with us, then how can we claim to be teachable? But these folk are learning from the apostles who are teaching them from scripture and they're lapping it up, welcoming the word of God, shaping their lives, compassionately confronting their lives, sanctifying and bringing restoration and wisdom as God's word does. Point four. Fourthly, hallmark four. How did that happen? Prayer. The Holy Spirit led them into devoted prayer. Personal, I'm sure, and in the context it implies corporately as well. I'm going to assume you know what prayer is. I'm not going to talk a lot about what prayer is. But there's resources we can find to help you with that if you, if you want them. But I have to ask the question again, was that uncontested? Were the battles to be won for the believers to get together and to pray? Did they perhaps face the temptation of other comfort or distraction? Worse still, did the enemy whisper to them, well, you ought to pray, didn't you? God won't be very pleased with you if you don't. Whereas God is saying, pray full of grace. Come with faith. Because I love to be with you. I love to hear your prayers. I think clearly battles were being won because they were described as being devoted to prayer. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Not only can it make you teachable, it can inspire you to prayer. Jumping to application, it seems like an obvious moment to reinforce what Will said earlier, that tonight we will be gathering to worship and to pray downstairs at 7.30. Currently, we're praying about an idea of hosting a, a warm bank in the Jubilee Centre this winter, a place for folk to come and be helped practically, and also a place where fellowship can happen. Perhaps that will include sharing of food, of praying together, of other things. We've been considering that where COVID caused increased isolation, loneliness and separation, perhaps a heating crisis will give an opportunity for increased togetherness, a place for God to be at work as people gather together during the week. We want to know what God's got planned, so we're bringing it to him in prayer. Fifthly, we'll look at the third hallmark, which is the last of the four. It's a bit like Sudoku, isn't it? They broke bread together, and we're going to do that in a moment. Hey, it's almost as if we actually applied this scripture when planning church life, isn't it? Here we see that they did this in each other's homes. Maybe that was on a Wednesday evening at their home group, or I don't know, maybe they had home group every evening. I don't know, maybe they didn't have a name for it. Maybe they didn't call it home group. They could have called it home group. They had first choice, didn't they? We've been, we've been making up names and recycling them ever since, but they, uh, they had a clean slate, the OG home groups. But we're seeing this response again to being filled with the Holy Spirit was a desire to hang out with each other in, their, in each other's homes, eating together and breaking bread and drinking wine in remembrance of what had united them the death and resurrection of Christ. 
The application transfers easily across the millennia, and we can do this. I hope some of you do. Maybe I can prompt you to do it more, maybe in your small groups, your hubs, with a friend or two that's around for dinner. You can suggest it. You can initiate it. You can source some bread and wine. You can start the moment. Of course, do it with a glad and a sincere heart. Today we've got bread and we've got shared cups and we've got wine capsules that you're free to choose between. When we've worshipped again in a little while, we're going we're gonna to come to the tables and we're going to take the bread and we're going to drink the wine and we're going to pray together and we're going to fellowship together. And if I count your rapt attention as devotion to teaching too, then we'll have completed the full set. Just before that, a couple more things. Note takers, you're on your own with the numbering now. I've lost count. Christ has ushered in the new covenant. Ephesians 1 tells us, God placed all things under Jesus' feet and appointed him to be the head over everything. For the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The motivation that the Holy Spirit was giving them not, was not just to be a good church or to be a good enough church. It was to know the fullness of Jesus. And God's means to know this was for them to be the church. Frequently gathering together, full of grace, devoted to the teaching of the word, praying together, breaking bread together, sharing possessions and so on. This is God's design to know him. Their growth in love with Jesus was in parallel with growing in love with his church. Yeah, he is a personal saviour, but he's also head of the church, which is his body, and we're inseparable. At the centre of each of these devotions is an opportunity to relate to God, remembering the cross, prayer conversations with him. Through his word, he speaks with us. As we live as part of his body, all connected to the head, we help each other to relate to him too. Missing any of these opportunities is missing out on the fullness of all that we are called to be and to know. One final thing to note about the connection between their devotion to being the church is it could seem like they were so busy looking upward or inward that there was no looking outward. Yet we see daily more were added. So they're not suggesting that they were saying, kind of, if we build it, they will come. No, they were a visible church, and we want to be visible. To go and find and invite folk to be saved, baptised and added to the church. I'm sure we're going to hear more on how the church grows as we continue through Acts. So, so for today, I just want to tell you that there's no need to apologise for God's church. Jesus is going to build his church. That's his plan. And the gates of hell will not overcome it. So when you're inviting folks to consider the claims of Jesus and to consider joining us, there's no need to apologise for the fact that we're countercultural, for the fact that we're teachable. 
for the fact that we follow the Bible, that we invite each other into our homes, and that we like to pray. Mark, if you and the band want to come up, maybe from what I've said there, maybe you're, you might be thinking something's missing for me. Uh, if this is a, a picture of devotion to the church that Jesus is building, uh, I'm not sure I quite think it's that great. Or maybe it could be a bit better. Or maybe I used to love the church, but I don't know, maybe not so much now. My encouragement is to try, try and hear what was happening in Acts here. Try and grasp that. Try and work out what it is that you're missing and receive it. Talk to God about it. Get it sorted. Maybe God's highlighted something to you already this morning that you want to respond to with him. I don't know, maybe fear or, or legalism or unresolved conflict or discouragement is clouding your view. Have you resorted to thinking that it's okay to remain not loving the church when Jesus is its head? I encourage you to retrace your steps, find the route, pull it out. Maybe you just need to go on being filled. Maybe you just need an increasing measure of the Holy Spirit. Be filled daily. Still applies from Rich preaching it two weeks ago. We haven't moved on from that. Be filled daily. Maybe there's even an opportunity now as we worship to have that conversation with God, to agree with him. We'll be coming up to break bread uh, shortly, but before we do that, we're going to stand and worship together. If you'd like to stand.